Welcome to the second episode of Calling All Stations with me, Christian Walmar. And thank you to the many people who listened to the first episode and indeed to the many comments that you sent in suggesting ideas of things we can cover and commenting on what they thought of the new podcast. Uh, now, uh, it's been a particularly busy uh, week in the news and uh, to uh, take us through what's been happening, uh, here's Mark Walker of Cochitamus. Hello Christian and happy winter solstice to you and to all of our listeners. There Thank have you. been a lot of news stories of interest in the past week but I think we probably ought to start off with paying tribute to a giant of the transport industry in the UK who passed away a few days ago and that was Adrian Shooter, somebody whom you knew well. Yes, I've met Adrian many times uh, during the 30 years I've been covering uh, the privatised uh, rail industry and he was described to me I think quite accurately by one of his former colleagues as the only genuine railway entrepreneur to come out of the privatised process. Um, he was, like many of the people who ran the railways after privatisation, uh, a former British rail manager, and he at one point ran the parcel service, which included the rather innovative Red Star service that uh, flourished for a few years. Um, and he did all sorts of jobs, ranging from you know, being traction manager in Carlisle, I think, to actually uh, being in charge of St Pancras Station. Uh, and uh, where he really uh, kind of came to prominence was when he put in a management buyout team bid uh, during the privatisation process of the mid-90s for uh, the Chiltern franchise. And the Chiltern, which sort of covers a few leafy kind of towns in Buckinghamshire and the like, is really one of, or was, one of the kind of lost franchises. Um, Marylebone, where it operates the trains, was a very underused station. It ran a few services out to places like Gerrard's Cross and Banbury, but there were very infrequent trains. It was greatly underused. And people thought, you know, why is a man like Adrian Shooter, who's very dynamic, taking over this sort of forgotten franchise. And of course, he proved them totally wrong by greatly increasing the number of services, the number of people using it, and turning Marylebone uh, into uh, a flourishing uh, station and part of uh, London's rail network. And he started off by uh, tried to get services out to Birmingham. And to do that, he needed to uh, ensure that the track was uh, redoubled. Of course, under British Rail, many parts of the rail network were singled. In other words, you just have a single track to save money. And uh, yet there was always the space to put in a, a, a track back in. And he managed to do that on a 30-mile section. That opened the way to half-hourly services to Birmingham and to compete with... Uh, Virgin Trains on the West Coast Main Line, it was very cheap. It was kind of £15 to get to Birmingham, which was a real deal. And what's more, the, the, the trains were quite pleasant. It takes you through very pleasant parts of Warwickshire. And so they actually uh, managed to develop a business out of that. And then 
he expanded uh, services uh, further with uh, kind of more frequent trains uh, and then uh, created a service out to Oxford, again, thanks to some uh, new uh, track. And all that was made possible by the fact that he had wangled out of the government a 20-year franchise. Now, all the franchises initially were five or seven years. And so having a 20-year franchise enabled him to attract some private investment, backed, of course, by a lot of public sector investment as well, um, and therefore was able to really grow the railway in a way that you know, other franchises couldn't and kind of expand services as well as kind of gathering in uh, extra passengers. And you know what? He will be remembered for a very long time because there is actually a statue to him uh, at Maradon Station. So, you know, as I mentioned in the obituary I've written for The Guardian, you know, uh, St Pancras has John Betjeman looking out uh, Paddington has Brunel sitting rather moodily uh, in his chair, and Marylebone has Adrian Shooter, um, which many people won't, who many people won't have heard of, but in fact, you know, was really one of the uh, genuine kind of commercially minded railway people who uh, helped grow the railway, create a whole host of new services. Um, and was a great innovator. Indeed, he actually, uh, in the early 2010s, bought a whole stock of old London Underground trains, created a company called Viva Rail, and uh, repurposed them by either putting in batteries or putting in diesel engines or putting in both um, for branch line services in various places. And they've sold these trains to uh, Wales, to uh, the Isle of Wight uh, and uh, several other uh, people. Marston Vale line, I think, in Bedfordshire is another the, one. The Marston Vale, which is using them. Yes, Bedford to uh, Bletchley has uh, used them, um, and that again is a genuine innovative idea. And in personal terms, he was a great guy. I used to have kind of fierce discussions with him in the pub at uh, Marylebone, and uh, probably almost uniquely he had a, a, a proper railway in his back garden um, which was a figure of eight track of two foot gauge I think it is of the and it had a Darjeeling Himalayan uh, railway engine there which he also built a workshop for it and he did all the work himself uh, his, his real skill was as an engineer as a traction uh, manager so he he absolutely uh, you know, was across the board a, a, a kind of uh, polymath of, of the railways. And, um, you know, he will be uh, greatly missed. And indeed, Viva Rail, his company, has got into difficulties because he's, he was ill and was unable to, to look after it. And, um, you know, so I hope that when people go, go to Marilyn and they see this statue, they find out a bit about him because, uh, you know, there's... There's not many people who uh, have done as much for the railways as, as Adrian. The statue of Adrian Shooter at Marylebone Station, I believe, was paid for by public subscription. Isn't that right, Christian? Uh, yes, what's amazing, it was paid for uh, just by fellow people, I think largely in the rail industry, who thought so much of him that uh, they spent, some, I think, something like £30,000 
uh, in uh, commissioning and installing this statue. And um, I know that Steve Norris, the former Conservative Transport Minister, was also greatly involved in ensuring that uh, they got the right permissions for it and the like. Um, and uh, it was wonderful that actually uh, it was unveiled while he was still alive and uh, he gave an impromptu speech uh, at the uh, ceremony. So uh, pretty unique experience that actually to get a, a, a statue of yourself uh, whilst you are living. There's not many people who manage that. And probably, with the greatest respect to all concerned, not many railway managers who've been uh, paid such a, a tribute. No, you can think of the odd uh, railway engineer like uh, Gresley, who has a, a statue, and, and as I mentioned, uh, Brunel. But uh, uh, yes, I'd, certainly in the modern era, I can't think of anybody else who's managed to get a statue of themselves. <laughs> In his career, Adrian Schuter will have had to have negotiated the many complex financial and managerial processes of the rail industry in Great Britain. And those manifested themselves recently, Christian, with the publication of the part of the alphabet soup, which is the high-level output specification and the statement of funds available the H-loss and SOFA for England and Wales. Yes, this is a ridiculously complex process by which uh, these uh, statements are supposed to then determine what improvements are going to be delivered to the railway over the ensuing five-year period, the control period for network rail. And the number seven... CP7 uh, will actually start in uh, April uh, 2024. So uh, this is part of the negotiating process uh, between uh, effectively Network Rail um, and uh, the Office of Rail Regulation and the government over the amount of money that will be available. Now, this used to be quite a uh, sort of important process and seem to genuinely relate to what might actually happen in those five-year uh, periods. But um, it's been greatly degraded and uh, the statements that were issued um, recently, a few days ago, were in fact kind of far less detailed, uh, kind of thin little documents that... Uh, you know, set out that there would be some 44 billion available for the railways, but didn't really kind of give much detail uh, of that, nor did it give any kind of list of the sort of work that is likely to take place. And uh, what's more, there was then a statement uh, in it, uh, in the uh, um, high-level output specification, which basically said... Uh, and I paraphrase slightly, but only slightly, it basically said, well, uh, don't think that this is uh, a clear programme of what we're going to do because uh, that's dependent on uh, budgetary constraints and uh, statements of uh, uh, the finance available by the government. Um, and so uh, actually... Um, you know, this is just sort of uh, 
kind of a number that has been plucked out uh, and um, watch uh, for further details when uh, there is a, the next budget review. So um, actually, I think the whole process has kind of lost uh, its focus. And really, we have to await uh, budgetary statements for the government to see what money is available. And indeed, in terms of CP6, uh, there was supposed to be a, a list of enhancements that was going to be produced by the government. And uh, that was promised no less than two and a half years ago um, and has never emerged. This so is the rail network enhancements pipeline, isn't it, Chris? That, that, that is, yes, some more alphabet soup there. Um, and what's remarkable is that, you know, we're, we're within uh, kind of 15 months or 16 months of the uh, end of CP6, and we still don't know what they're supposed to do in CP6. So uh, I think, you know, it's gone from a five-year plan system to, to back to the sort of terrible system that, that bugged British rail managers of really kind of deciding things on the hoof and, and with no kind of... Uh, advanced kind of planning, which I do know that, you know, my friends in the rail industry are absolutely insensitive about because, you know, they need to uh, have a plan to know what to invest in, how to uh, work things out, how to schedule things and so on. So uh, it's yet more part of uh, the way that the whole structure of the rail industry has fallen apart post-COVID uh, with no kind of sign of anybody being in charge. We're recording episode two of Calling All Stations with Christian Walmar on the winter solstice day, 21st of December. And of course, Christian we continue to be in the middle of a serious wave and series of uh, forms of uh, strike and industrial action on Great Britain's railways. But there have been one or two positive developments lately, haven't there? Uh, yes, but a, a negative one first is that we're now uh, expecting you know, not only more strikes by RMT, the, the kind of main uh, uh, union, uh, for uh, January, the first week in January. And we've also, uh, as left, the Drivers' Union has also announced that it's going to have a, a, a day's strike on, on January the 5th. So um, there doesn't seem to be uh, kind of much light at the end of the tunnel there, except the key point is that in Wales, uh, the unions have all agreed to a 4.5% kind of annual uh, pay rise. And what's interesting there is that the point I've, I've been making a lot, and indeed in the first uh, podcast and uh, several media, is that they've separated out the pay deal from the productivity deal. And that's absolutely crucial to kind of get a solution to this because throwing in a whole lot of productivity improvements which only affect certain parts of the workforce anyway and tying that in with uh, a pay deal uh, has obviously angered uh, the unions particularly as ministers are want to make statements out like oh we should have the driver only operation across the whole network when everybody knows that's not feasible uh, and as very practically and uh, from a safety point of view uh, impossible 
uh, and it just kind of winds up the unions and gets everybody angry and stuff. And so it's very heartwarming that, you know, in Wales, uh, they have uh, actually sorted this out and pointed out the way that the unions will accept a deal that's quite well below inflation, but uh, nevertheless, you know, gives them uh, some uh, extra money and uh, a deal in time for Christmas. So, uh, you know, there is a lesson to be learnt there. Whether ministers in England uh, will actually look at that uh, is another matter. We've had some interesting developments for the bus sector in England over the past week, Christian, with the agreement by the Department for Transport to support the operators in implementing a capped £2 bus fare across most of the country. Yes, this is a fantastically uh, sensible and rather belated uh, moves. I mean, some bus fares are, are, are really quite high and they have got the agreement of most of the operators. It must be said it does not apply to London, which, of course, is the uh, most uh, heavily used uh, bus network by far in the country. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, it applies uh, across uh, most bus companies uh, in England. And uh, gosh, Mark, this is really overdue, this sort of thinking that, you know, if you're going to try and, uh, you know, help less well-off people levelling up, if you're going to try and make transport more sustainable, uh, if you're going to try to, uh, you know, provide for all sorts of people who uh, do not have any other means of transport, the buses are the obvious thing. More people use buses every day in the country than actually use the trains. But politically, we're always talking about the railways and very rarely talk about buses. So, uh, you know, this is a, a welcome move. It's only until the end of March, though. And, uh, you know, it's high time that uh, the whole issue of bus fares and, and the, the cost of using the bus was actually looked at in... Uh, some uh, strategic way and that uh, some sort of discipline was imposed on a, on a sector which was you know deregulated in 1986 and which has you know suffered greatly from uh, at times excess competition mon and then monopolies and then uh, simply uh, withdrawal of services uh, particularly commercial ones and councils not being able to pay for uh, supported services and so we've ended up with, you know, far fewer bus services, many places kind of not served by buses at all. So uh, this ought to be the start of a process of looking at uh, the whole industry. And I must say, Mark, that uh, it also begs the question about rail fares, um, which is a whole uh, huge, bigger can of worms. But, you know, the fact that there are still uh, ridiculous uh, the high fares and all sorts of uh, uh, anomalies in the system uh, and nobody has yet kind of grasped the nettle and said right we really ought to have a serious look at this there's been a lot of talk about it but certainly it points the way uh, to uh, a suggestion which I think you've made about saying well there ought to be a maximum fare of a hundred pounds, um, you know, at any time uh, for any journey across the network. And that sort of eye-catching move, which probably wouldn't actually cost very much because very few people pay more than a hundred pounds ultimately, 
would be the sort of thing that might attract people back onto the railways. And of course, it's a principle that does apply with the London ticketing system, doesn't it? In that there's a maximum daily fare you can pay during using the Oyster system. Yes, there's a capping system. Well, even if you just use your 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 uh, bank card, uh, they actually do cap it off at a certain level, which is kind of around two very long-term journeys and a little bit extra. But it, it means you 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 essentially can you know rove around the system. Uh, for nothing once once you reach that cap and and you know this is sensible stuff and a lot of it has been done kind of abroad both in you know in Spain where where they've uh, given free travel and on uh, a lot of railway service in Germany where they had the nine euro thing which they're now introducing some also uh, cheaper permanent cheaper scheme and so on and you know we, we've got to think about that because again and again. We get back to this ridiculous point of people saying, "Oh well, the the, the the railways, the bus services, they have to pay for themselves," you know, without any regard for the wider economic benefits that we know are uh, delivered by uh, good transport services. You know, no, they don't have to pay for themselves in the narrow sense of, you know, ensuring there's enough fares to pay for their operations. They pay for themselves in societal benefits, and it's something that I banged on about throughout my career about you know understanding the nature of economics and the nature of externalities which you know essentially are kind of benefits that are uh, delivered to the wider society by having an effective transport network and we're still back to you know arguing about this i i happened to bump into a woman um, who's been campaigning uh, for uh, most of her life she told me uh, about uh, improving rail services in Alaska, of all places, where uh, there were there used to be kind of commuter services in Anchorage, the main uh, city, and there's a five six hundred mile line across uh, the state. Uh, and uh, she says she comes up against this all the time. That you know she suggests improvements, and they have to say no, no, they have to pay for themselves. That we can't subsidise them, and so on. So. It's a thing that exists across the world, this failure to understand the benefits of good public transport. I have a feeling that's a subject we'll, we'll be returning to many times during these podcasts. Absolutely. Christian, electric scooters have been in the news in the past week. Do you have any views about this? Uh, yes, well, I'm I'm a rather fan of electric scooters, except when they kind of uh, you know nearly run you over or, or they kind of uh, uh, go on the pavement. Uh, but it's really high time we sorted uh, this out because uh, actually it's illegal to have an electric scooter, uh, apart from in the various uh, trial areas. And uh, Arab has come up with a report on uh, initial uh, findings about these uh, trial areas. And uh, it comes up with some interesting findings. I was quite surprised that about people who use scooters uh, would have driven otherwise. So that shows that uh, there is a real potential environmental uh, benefit. Of course, most of them, about 45% would have walked and the rest would either have used public transport or odd enough, 10% said that they wouldn't have made the journey uh, if they hadn't done it by scooter. Uh, but... Uh, there still is no legislation about this and it's clear that 
these things belong on the road. They don't belong on pavements, uh, and that should be uh, banned. Uh, they uh, should uh, be regulated in, in some sort of way. Uh, I mean, I don't think they should have number plates, uh, just like by bicycles. I think that would be impractical. Uh, but there still should be uh, rules of the of the road that they should uh, follow. Um, but the government's been very wary of uh, legislating for it because, yes, they are sometimes unpopular, but only because uh, people use them on pavements, which, which clearly, actually, oddly enough at the moment, Mark, they're illegal both to use on pavements and on the road. <laughs> so, yes, indeed. Uh, so it doesn't make any sense uh, whatsoever. So it's it's high time that uh, some legislation was was brought through to sort them out, but also I must say I think they should be encouraged. Um, I used one, uh, I tested one out in London uh, a few months ago, and then I was in Bristol the other day, and I needed to catch the train, and uh, there were lots of these things lying about, and I signed up uh, to Voy or Voix, I suppose it must be. Um, and uh, buzzed off to the to the station on on this thing, which uh, goes quite a steady lickety spit kind of speed. It was was great fun. It was a lovely uh, sunny day. Cost me seven quid, but I could have then used it for a whole rest of the day going round Bristol. Uh, so because I, I it, it sold me a day past. And look, I think there is uh, space for these things. I think you know this is quite an important new form of transport. Uh, and uh, should 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 be encouraged, particularly as I said, the key finding about the fact that you know it will take some cars off the road. But as you rightly point out, Christian, there are uh, individuals and indeed organisations that have concerns about the widespread deployment of electric scooters in the UK, and uh, particularly, I think that's the case with organisations representing people with disabilities who um, feel particularly vulnerable to those irresponsible users who, who deploy their uh, scooters on pavements. And, and I think it's fair to say we'd be interested to hear from organisations and individuals with worries about scooters as well uh, as yes. those who are supporters. Uh, absolutely. But look, it's a matter of enforcement. It, it always is with these things, you know, that, that uh, you can't put up barriers. I mean, sometimes they put up these barriers on cycle uh, ways to stop motorbikes going through them but it makes everybody on their bicycles have to get off and back on again and, and it puts people off and it kind of negates the whole point and I think we have to be careful about throwing out uh, the baby with the bathwater look these things are, are, are going to happen people are going to use them and if you if you don't legalize them then actually you're making it worse because people will still get hold of them and then it's an absolute free fall so getting the right sort of legislation uh, in train I think is uh, the most important uh, and yes I do recognize that you know they might be unpopular with some uh, people and there might be some concerns but uh, it is a matter of just ensuring that uh, this whole thing is policed properly um, you know I don't think you I, I don't think you can go against the grain here. I think th these things are going to happen. That you know they are a viable means of of transport. You know you 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 can't have uh, the equivalent of a, somebody with a red flag walking in front of all of them. You know it's not going to happen. So you might as well then bring in some sensible, clear legislation about it.
Here's Christian's final word for this week. Well, Mark, I was listening to this uh, American uh, podcast the other day uh, and they were discussing the fact that uh, in uh, American Airlines, who, remember, uh, got bailed out very heavily during the COVID period, but are now back in profit again. But somehow they want to be more profitable. And one of the ideas they're putting forward, now, look, this is really kind of insane. Uh, they want to do away with uh, a co-pilot, with a second pilot uh, in the cockpit. Uh, and this is a completely insane idea because what, what would happen then if a pilot is incapacitated or indeed if the pilot makes a, an error that, uh, you know, sometimes the, that's the role of the co-pilot uh, is to actually check uh, what the pilot is actually doing or has done. And uh, without though that uh, safety kind of feature, I think there would be no doubt that there will be more air accidents. And air accidents is something that have reduced greatly over the years. I mean, uh, air uh, uh, safety has improved immeasurably uh, thanks to technology, thanks to having uh, better pilot training, uh, thanks to uh, essentially, you know, uh, the aeroplanes being uh, far better designed and so on. And so I remember when in the 90s, when I was writing about this stuff, there was an expectation there'd be a major uh, air accident every week if, if things, if current trends continued. In fact, we very rarely get air accidents now. So why the airlines would want to kind of jeopardise their safety uh, record and put forward the idea of having a single pilot is completely and utterly bonkers. And they they are talking about this in terms of cargo planes, but you know, imagine a cargo plane, you know, falling on top of a city because the pilot has a heart attack. There was such an accident. I remember covering when I was at the Independent in Amsterdam. There was a, a Israeli cargo plane that smashed into a tower block and killed about a hundred people. Well, I mean, it just, you know, why do they try to do these things? Absolute madness, and hopefully it will be nipped in the bud. Christian, at the top of the show, I wished you a happy winter solstice. As we come to the end, may I wish you, your family, and our, our listeners a Merry Christmas and a very happy New Year. Uh, absolutely, and uh, I echo those thoughts. And uh, look, uh, this has been a, a, an amazing kind of uh, year politically and in terms of the transport world we look forward to uh, running this podcast uh, through 2023 uh, looking at uh, all these issues and um, hopefully it will just be as interesting as 2022 Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitarmus Limited production